Hey folks, this is Marcella Dance, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. So my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Marcel Ardans from Lessons with Marcel YouTube channel, which I'm sure you all know about. Um, not the first time we've chatted, uh, but I'm really looking forward to this one. Marcel, welcome back. Hey, how you doing, man? Yeah, good. good. Thanks for coming back. Um, this is a this is a really interesting one. This one sort of came out of nowhere, really. Um, I did a little episode around Tony Rice's birthday and just put together a compilation of things people had said about him for the podcast. And Marcel just messaged after that. And and I said, just sort of off the cuff, I've been looking through your tabs on your website and it, there's a huge amount of stuff from Tony Rice, but there's also a lot of Billy Strings, a lot of Molly Tuttle. Do you fancy having a chat about those players? And he's like, yeah, great. Can we, let's, let's have a chat about them, about their style, what makes them them. I um, mean, he said, can we also add Trey Hensley to that list? Because I love Trey and I'd like to talk about him too. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a chat through those four players. Um, and we're going to start with Billy Strings, who is just everywhere at the moment and is inventive and is fresh and yet authentic and very much divides opinion. Um, and I think it'd be just, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this conversation <laughs> just to learn some stuff because Marcel spent so many hours transcribing these guys' music, he's got some real insight into what makes their style theirs. Yeah, I think I think you kind of hit it on the head already when you said he divides opinion, right? Billy Billy Strings is a is an interesting player for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, I do think that his 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 whole catalog, if you look across his whole career, I think you can find something that you like because he's certainly done more traditional stuff and he's certainly done like more progressive stuff. And I, I think depending on the bluegrass musician you're talking to, they probably have a favorite era of Billy already, even though his he's so young, right? His career yeah. isn't, isn't decades long yet. <laughs> it's really interesting because I interviewed uh, Billy's mandolin player, Jared Walker, a while ago. And he mm -hmm. talk, talked about the first few gigs that he did with Billy. And he said they were simultaneously the most traditional and the most progressive thing he's ever done, which is, yeah. which is quite, quite yeah. a balancing act, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. That sounds kind of right on the money for for Billy. Um, I think that if you listen to uh, Billy's early material, it's really easy to see how influenced by Doc Watson he is. It's basically all Doc Watson licks. And um, and coming from someone who's transcribed a lot of Doc Watson and a lot of Billy, um, what's interesting is he doesn't always get it uh, note for note. Right. So even even in the beginning area, when it's when it's really close to Doc's playing, he's not playing exactly what Doc played. He's not grabbing it that perfectly, which means that he's already developing a little bit of a personal voice. Right. He's like yeah. um, Doc Watson ish. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that I think that one of the like most obvious licks and this is this is interesting to me um, coming from people who are maybe more familiar with Billy and less familiar with Doc Watson. There's a lot of new fans in bluegrass from Billy. And mm. so there's kind of been this evolution where uh, a lick like this, we associate with Doc Watson. You can hear Doc do that in um, like Black Mountain Rag. You can hear him do it in, in just a ton of songs. He plays uh, Beaumont Rag, right? Somewhere he includes... Um, this minor to major third that's split across two strings, right? So they ring against each other. And Billy was, 
I mean, still is, uh, but especially in his early materials, really fascinated with that lick. He does it all the time. He does it in G as well. So people will probably uh, peg a lick like this as kind of a, uh, a Billy Strings thing. And you can hear that grind against those two notes. And it's not, I wouldn't call it a Billy Strings thing per se. I would think that it's just a, it's a really smart bite from Doc Watson. You know, he's just... Uh, referencing his hero over and over again every time he plays that lick, and he loves he loves to find those and, and sort of hang on them for a while as well. In fact, like he repeats notes quite a lot, doesn't he? He'll, he'll sort of hang on one note or hang on those sort of semitone sort of gaps quite a lot as a, a sort of a point of tension or setting something up so he can go somewhere else. Yeah, totally. And that's kind of like a uh, uh, that's like a very early bluegrass move. If you listen to players like George Shuffler and Bill Napier. Um, or even pre-bluegrass players, you hear a lot of repeated notes. And um, that's not something you hear in the modern era, right? In the modern era, you hear like runs where it's constantly a different note and every eighth note is filled. That kind of thing. And then if you listen to older breaks, you'll hear more like... really will hammer home these melody notes over and over again. So yeah, yeah. Billy Strings is kind of a, um, it, it's almost like this, the natural progression of bluegrass guitar um, went from like early players, Bill Napier, George Shuffler, right? Early bluegrass lead guitar players. And, uh, you know, Don Reno did like some rockabilly stuff. There's, there's all kinds of these different interpretations of what bluegrass guitar are. And none of them are really, um, like specific, none of them is like, oh, that's what guitar does. All of everyone's kind of figuring out a different thing. Bill Napier does a lot of the repeated note. George Shuffler does a lot of cross picking. Once again, Don Reno does a lot of the rockabilly kind of thing. And if you if you you know get all the way up to the '60s, you get someone like Tony Rice, and it's like, oh, this is what guitar does. And and Billy Strings is like is like the I don't want to say he's the anti-Tony Rice or anything, but he kind of took everything in a different direction. It's kind of like steampunk or something where they're like, Hey, you know, what if, what if everything was like made out of copper and, you know, cogs and, and, and steam power. And Billy Strings kind of did that. He took all of these early um, bluegrass guitar styles and made that progressive as opposed to following the natural evolution, which is, I think really, really cool. Who else has done that? No one. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we'll come on to talk about other players and, and Tony Rice in a bit, but there's definitely a, a Tony Rice sort of influence runs through so much of bluegrass guitar now. And to hear, like, and not just the sort of the licks, but also sort of Billy does a lot of cross picking as well. And, um, and, right. and he, he talks about, he talks about that actually. And sort of, I've heard him talk about it on stage, but he loves the traditional nature of what jared walker brings on mandolin because he's a you know uses a lot of double stops a lot of tremolo also consciously doesn't play super clean he's not like a, a sierra hull or and i think that right. is an element of that in billy's band you know uh, a sort of a real rootsy feel however they take it and however far off that they might go there's a, an element of really wanting to ground it in that yeah it's a funny it's a funny balance that you strike in bluegrass where um not to be too much of a doomsdayer, but um, the traditionalism is kind of a lie, right? Bluegrass is, by its very definition, a, a, a progressive genre. Um, you know, it comes out of 1945, right? Bill Monroe's the guy. He gets all these instruments together, and they all play a certain way. 
And, uh, and he even dictated like, oh, maybe, maybe we could have accordion. No, I don't like accordion. Right. Bill Monroe listened to the Dobro and was like, Dobro is a part of it. <laughs> Bill Monroe listened to like lead guitar. He was talking to Doc Watson, like, Hey, should Doc Watson join the Bluegrass Boys? And he was like, no, Doc, I don't think you're right. So Bill Monroe did have a really kind of progressive guiding hand. So it's, it's funny that we look back at Bill Monroe as traditionalism. And like you're saying about Jared's mandolin playing, you can see that as traditionalism, but it's actually, you know, at least for that time, it was very progressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so where, where a bluegrass band decides to draw that line is kind of arbitrary, right? There's some bands out there that think traditionalism, yeah, is this 1945 sound, you know, maybe people are, you know, I, I, I don't want to say this, but maybe they're a little sloppier or something, right? Maybe it's less clean. Um, or other people draw that line and say like, no, this 1960s era is like, this is what bluegrass is supposed to sound like. Or other people draw that line, like the 1980s, they're like bluegrass album band. That's real bluegrass. You know, that, that's what feels like traditionalism to that. And that it's arbitrary, I guess is the word, right? You draw that line wherever you want. And um, I think Billy has done an interesting thing because he's kind of drawn that line in multiple places. It's a very progressive act, but he references a lot of very traditional bluegrass. Yeah. And there seems to be a definite sense of him, being very aware that his audience is not a bluegrass audience and also not, yeah. not a bluegrass audience. So he's, if he bring, he plays a song that would be known to a bluegrass audience, he goes out of his way to point out where it came from. So the people who don't know the sort of the history will go and yeah. check it out. He's not doing it to, to sort of say that he's doing it specifically to say, go and check this out. This is where it came from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, uh, I mean, probably the best thing that's happened for the genre and in, in forever um, in that a lot of times I think when bluegrass, you know, pops off again, it's kind of exciting again. It's kind of based on this, uh, traditionalism lie. For instance, the, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack for people that were alive during that. <laughs> I'm sure some of you were like us. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that, that was a big boom, right? Everyone started playing like traditional music when that movie came out and that soundtrack dropped. And yeah, there, there, I think there was a little bit of like, disingenuity kind of buried in that where everyone was like, Oh, this is what American music is. This is what traditional stuff is. The music from that album is from a ton of different decades, right? It's, mm. it's a pretty good spread of, of sources and types of genre and stuff like that. So it's always funny when people point at that record and they're like, it's a bluegrass record. Well, it's kind of not. Some of it's old time. Some of it's like much more gospel. Some of it has this like field hauler kind of vibe. They're, they're, they're different things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very very little of it is a straight bluegrass album. It's true. Um, and the uh, uh, another big boom for everyone was like the Old Crow Medicine Show, Devil Makes Three, the sort of wagon wheel generation, which yeah. I think I'm part of. Um, that all of those people that came in were like, "Oh, this is traditional music. This is what it is," and it it wasn't really that. So I love that when Billy comes on stage, he's like, "Oh, this is from this artist, or this is how I learned this." Instead of saying oh, this is traditional American music. This is just what it is, right? He doesn't blanket statement say that. He's like, no, let me tell you the specifics. Yeah, and I think that's really cool because there's a there's an element of, well, there's a there's sort of freedom about very much wanting to root things and reference things and be part of a tradition and also just entirely do his thing. Because yeah. there's something, like I saw Billy live for the first time this year and the first time was in a really small venue and it was felt more like a traditional sort of bluegrass show. And then the second time was in not even a big venue, but a bigger venue. And they did the full on kind of face melt Billy strings experience. And yeah, 
it reminded me very much of watching Neil Young play with Crazy Horse in that the band is sort of there to get him to a point that he can go somewhere other than where he started off. And the audience yeah. play a part in that as well, particularly like Billy String show, you know, the really vocal, loud, engaged audience. And it's almost like he wants to go on a journey and you're welcome to come with him, but you need to help him get there. And so it's about yeah, energy totally. as much as anything else. It is, yeah. And he, I think he achieves that with his guitar playing using um, using a lot of like jam band and rock and roll tricks that bluegrass isn't, um, I don't know, isn't uh, saturated with yet. And so it, it has this kind of new modern sound. One of the things that he does a lot are these repeating licks. And uh, that kind of goes with that conversation we were having earlier where modern bluegrass players, you know, the template is to play different notes over and over again, right? It's this kind of like a snake that leads up and down the fretboard. And, um, and Billy doesn't do that a lot, right? We get a lot of repeating licks um, where, you know, we'll get like, you know, kind of these rock and roll, like, or like the Jimmy Page one. Billy isn't afraid of including those, whereas a normal bluegrass musician would be like, that's not bluegrass. I can't repeat, can't repeat the phrase over and over again. But when you put those into, into a normal bluegrass line, they feel great. Whoops. But yeah, that's the, that's the point, right? Yeah. And he, he doesn't, he likes to leave, leave a gap as well and sort of accent off beats and, and make things, there's a, like a willingness to make things quite angular at times as well oh, yeah yeah you um kind of in some of those cross picking lines too this one that he does a lot that kind of thing that kind of stuff that he does is is very interesting and like you said it feels very angular right the pattern is in threes it's not really sitting with the eighth note perfectly. And then there's a bunch of dissonance in that like root note, major seven, dominant seventh, up and down, back and forth in different patterns. It's very cool. And he, he'll repeat that, you know, for like four measures and just let you kind of like sink into this weird, you know, unsure space. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's sort of, um, it can be a way of pivoting from one thing into another thing and kind of just changing the energy level or, shifting a gear or just just making something stretch out beyond the traditional forms of a bluegrass song. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can imagine um, Billy kind of breaking multiple uh, rules in a row. Maybe we're doing that angular thing. Maybe we're repeating it out. We're referencing tradition now. Doc Watson. Billy Strings thing to do, and uh, and it's kind of got everything we just talked about wrapped up in it. <laughs> and I think one of the things I, I'm this, you know, this is um, a thing that maybe divides people too. And it's he, he sort of does what Chris Thiele does playing mandolin, and that he his physical movements, which may look a bit random, are often it looks like they're often designed to point something out in the music you may have missed. He's sort of he's almost directing your attention to what he's playing by the way he's moving his body. He's sort of going, look at this. Yeah, yeah, really right. interesting. Yeah, you see that. Uh, um, you see that in those repeating patterns where sometimes they don't fit squarely in time, right? If you imagine there's like eight eighth notes in a measure, if he's repeating an idea that only has five notes in it, 
well, that idea, you know, those aren't going to divide evenly, right? The idea is going to be sort of on the beat, off the beat, over and over again. Sometimes you'll see him, you know, rock his body with his own personal pattern as opposed mm-hmm. to the the pattern that the band is establishing, right? You, he's like pointing out, oh, feel how interesting this sits with the beat. And he'll want you to experience that rather than to experience the, the groove you've been experiencing all along. Totally. And do you find, I know it's very easy when you talk about um, like any instrumentalist, but guitarist particularly, it's, it, it's easy to think about their lead playing when you talk about their style. But often like rhythm playing is as much a, you know, then the choices that people make and the way they weave in and out. And um, that's more obvious with some players than others. And I wonder if you had any particular thoughts about Billy's rhythm playing. Billy kind of plays that like, um, maybe not exactly, but kind of in the same vein of like the Jimmy Martin rhythm. Like it's very heavy handed. It's very forceful. Um, and it's completely different from um, the the modern aesthetic too, right? A lot of modern players have gone away from this heavy-handed traditional rhythm and they're playing kind of this floaty uh like tony rice kind of thing right and mm. billy doesn't do that billy plays it very straight ahead um which <laughs> which is very interesting it's also a shame to talk about because you know there's maybe there's not a ton there to talk about because it is so straight ahead um yeah. i think what's more interesting about billy's rhythm is maybe that he's okay with presenting different grooves um, so not everything is this bluegrass backbeat sort of boom, chuck, boom, chuck. Not everything is that he's got a ton of songs that he's recorded that don't have that groove. And I love that. Um, maybe people who know me know that I love that. If you listen to my record, there's, I don't think there's a single bluegrass chop on it. <laughs> yeah. And you can hear sort of other influences coming through, not just in like the way he plays with them, like you say, but in some of the note choices as well with sort of flat fifths and things, there's a clear, um, like metal influence in his playing as well. Oh yeah, and you've sort of heard him talk about um, the fact he gets as energized listening to Slayer as he does listening to fast bluegrass, and you know, <laughs> and 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 it's a it's a bit of this. He's not the only player we're talking about tonight who's got that kind of influence in him as well. Because we're going to come on and talk about Trey Hensley in a minute, and he's he's said very much the same sort of thing. And there does seem to be yeah. a bit of a a strange Venn diagram of bluegrass and metal where there's quite a few people in the middle. <laughs> there was a there was a time when I was at a gas station, and um, and I happened to have my guitar, you know, in my case, and uh, and I was right next to a guy who um, who also had his guitar in the case, wild, right, and uh, and he had uh, he had like a coffin case, you know, like they make those for like BC Bridge guitars, some you know some real metal yeah, yeah. thing, right, and um, and so I asked him, I was like, oh, what you got in there, and we ended up talking about it. And um, I want to say they make those coffin cases for warlocks. I don't know. Maybe that's what he had. But anyway, I was like, oh, I play bluegrass. You know, I have, you know, a D whatever. I don't remember what guitar I had. And uh, and so we ended up talking and we, you know, we were like showing each other like what picks we use. We were talking about like the alternate picking technique. And we had this whole talk in the gas station where, you know, just kind of our whole worlds overlapped me and this metal guitar player. <laughs> At the Seven <laughs> Eleven, I think there's a there's a certain appreciation of of sort of energy and technique that goes into both of them, but they're sort of high energy music with a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which sort of leads us. If you look at Billy's technique, his technique was much more uh, much more metal influenced early on. You can kind of see in his right hand, and as time has gone on, I think he plays more and more like a bluegrass player. 
Um, in that, one of the big things I think is that Billy's way more relaxed now. If you watch the older footage, it, it almost seems like he's fighting the guitar a little bit. Mm. And now he seems like he's really coming to his element and it's easy, right? He, he doesn't have to fight the instrument. It just comes out. I think that's really cool. It'd be really interesting to see because I, I think I read something the other day that he's going to be doing a much more straight ahead bluegrass album with his dad, with Terry Barber, with his dad. A much more traditional oh, cool. sort of fiddle tune type stuff. I've seen some videos and playing live together, but I believe that's in the offing and it'd be really interesting to hear him in a different context. Yeah, I agree. Um, I've, I've seen those videos of him playing with his dad too. Um, it's cool stuff. I, I like how they sing harmony together too. Yeah. And there's, there's, it's a really cool video of Billy and Brian Sutton at um, the station Inn playing together and just, you know, hearing him in a, a simpler context. Just playing very traditional straight ahead stuff is just fascinating because he can, he, you know, he can do all of it. He's just choosing what he wants. Yeah, yeah, it's true. He he certainly um, in certain phrases that he plays, he navigates the the fretboard, um, and kind of like you said, uh, not not because he he can't do it another way, but he'll navigate the fretboard in simplistic ways because I think he likes the way it sounds. Um, there's a lick that goes like this. I'll show you real quick. That goes like this. This is a Billy Strings lick. You hear it all the time. Whoops. Like that. And um, there's other ways to get up the fretboard, right? The line could have been more modern. Right? It could have been something like that, which feels like, to me, like a more modern player. That's what I would play. Mm. The Billy opts for kind of sliding the same shape, you know, up the fretboard was kind of a Billy Strings thing to do, and I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't think of that. I would want to play. I tried to put together this, like, individual line of, like, ba 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 It wouldn't occur to me to just keep sliding that same shape. And that's a much more rock and roll approach to playing lead guitar, isn't it? It's sort of taking those shapes and just sort of shifting them up and down a bit. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, it sounds like a really strange segue to talk about heavy metal and linked to bluegrass guitarists, but... We, we just mentioned Trey Hensley, and um, we were sort of going from a very Doc Watson-influenced player to a very Tony Rice-influenced player, but also a player with a, just a wide-open bag of influences from all over the shop. Yeah, that's uh, true. I, I, know yeah, you're Trey. A, I know you're a big fan of Trey. Yeah, that's true. I've interviewed him a couple times on the channel. We need to do another one. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, Trey is very, is very influenced by the rock and roll thing, but he's also very influenced by the country thing. And... Um, like, for instance, of all the guitar players that we're going to talk about, the player who plays the most bends is Trey Hensley. But no way anyone even comes close to how much he bends yeah, yeah. on an acoustic, you know, guitar, right? He's playing on like a, you know, D-sized guitar with medium strings. He's bending a whole step. I mean, it's wild. No one else is doing that as much as Trey. Well, I heard him talk about that on an interview a while ago, and he was sort of saying, you know, those are slightly easier to do maybe on a slightly shorter scale Gibson guitar, but they're really hard work on a you know dreadnought sized Martin, and and he said he he, act, he works on it. It's something he gets the guitar out and makes sure that he said because it's really hard to do, but it's a it's part of his style and something that he likes to do a lot. Yeah, yeah. The um the the one that always shocks me when I hear him do it is this uh, uh country kind of bending lick. So if you're a guitar player, I'll explain it real quick. I'm on my B and my E string on 10th fret, and I'm only going to bend the uh, B string up a whole step. So I'm going to play both strings, but only bend one. 
right? It's tough to do with mediums, right? Yeah, but yeah. On top of that, you can bend up and you can play other notes. Right, line like that. Um, and Trey does that kind of stuff all the time. wild to me yeah, <laughs> i'm yeah, obviously yeah. not doing it as well as trey that's the, probably one of the hardest things to replicate but it's very cool I, i'll see him bend all the way uh down on you know on like his d string or his a string right this kind of stuff i can't even get it all the way to you know who's doing that on a yeah, steel yeah, string yeah. it's remarkable and he yeah and he, i think he's maybe spent more time than any of the guitarists we're talking about tonight playing electric guitar. I know he's done a lot of electric sessions in Nashville. Country, just, country, not, yeah, records and stuff too. Yeah, and I mean it. Not just guitar; he's singing. So he's a very strong seam of country runs through what he does. He's you know, he's, there's an obvious Merle Haggard influence in the voice, and there's you know an obvious Roy Nichols influence in the guitar as well. Um, you know, he's, yeah, he's, we are we are going to talk about Tony, but you know, if we weren't talking about Tony, maybe I would say that Trey has the best voice on the list. <laughs> I mean, there's a pretty good list for singers. There's some good voices on there. They're, they've all yeah, got their own. But you are. could you could do a whole podcast on, 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 them, on them as singers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's got uh, a great voice. Yeah, he's got a remarkable voice. Great songwriter too. Um, but his, uh, you know, if we're if we're talking about Billy Strings and we're saying that like. Billy Strings is bringing this like jam band influence to bluegrass, which he very much is. I think Trey Hensley is bringing this like country influence to bluegrass. Um, not just his guitar work, all the bands and stuff, but like you said, his voice, he doesn't have a traditional bluegrass voice. I mean, all these guys sing high. That's what mm. I've tried my whole life to do. I normally sing tenor parts if I'm not singing lead. Trey can't do that. Trey, <laughs> Trey has like a very baritone voice. Um, so even some of these like classic bluegrass songs that are in like B flat and B and up there, Trey doesn't sing him up there. Um, I won't say because he can't, but I suspect because he can't. He's just got a lower voice, and he sounds great doing it. Yeah, I mean, like you want to hear him sing where he sings. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> he is um, he is definitely one of my favorite players, though. And I think one of the one of the things that gets past a lot of people, um, and and this isn't a um, you know, to talk trash on the recording industry or anything, but a lot of um, records just get really processed. So you mm. take a lot of, um, like, for instance, if you take your flat picking line, um, just naturally you tend to have these notes that are a little bit quieter, a little bit louder. You slap a compressor on that. You slap a limiter on that. You bury it in the mix. You slather the thing with reverb. And, like, suddenly your line sounds really good. It sounds like you played it just perfectly and all the notes are the right volume. And when you listen to Trey play, it just sounds like that. You can hear it in every interview and all of those like random live videos. You can hear that every single note coming out of his guitar is just clean and precise and perfect. And it, it must be some of that Tony Rice influence because Tony was very into, you know, just the cleanliness of approach. But, but Trey's kind of taken it beyond that. You know, everything is just, just perfectly articulated and the volume is so consistent. Like sometimes when, you know, when I'm talking to him and we're, you know, in person, I'm listening to him play. It sounds like his guitar has a compressor on it. It sounds like it's already been limited and everything's been, you know, uh, sort of equalized. So all the notes are the same volume. He just plays like that. It's remarkable. Yeah. And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's when you talk about um, a guitarist's style, it's very easy to talk about note choices and right hand technique and 
but but tone and tone production is such a big thing isn't it and, and that is that's part of technique and it's but but just the the sound people get out of an instrument is a very personal thing particularly an acoustic instrument oh yeah yeah um and <laughs> and if i've ever felt inadequate tone wise it's when i'm talking to trey if you watch the interviews that i've done with him back there's moments where he plays a lick and then i play it you can hear when he plays it, everything has that perfectly even feel. And when I play it, like one note will be way louder. <laughs> one note will be way quieter. And like, I need that help, right? Please compress the hell out of my guitar track. <laughs> so it sounds like Trace. Um, but he just sounds like that. Yeah, it's remarkable. And it's interesting listening to some of the recordings as him and Rob Ikes and Tommy Emmanuel. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Tommy's got a very different technique and a very different tone. And, and you know, there's, it's really interesting listening to a recording when you know there are two guitarists and you can just tell who it is from the tone before you even listen to the notes. They oh, yeah, like, yeah. They sound like themselves. And, you know, Tommy is a great guitar player, but um, he, I, I'm kind of shocked when I watch the videos and I see Tommy keeping up with Trey so well. Because let's say it this way, Tommy does like a lot of stuff, right? He plays guitar in a lot of different ways. He does the yeah, freestyle yeah, yeah. thing, he flapbacks, and he you know, does this and that. And he's very good at all of it. Trey kind of only does the flat picking. And so the fact that Tommy can keep up with Trey at Trey's like only thing, right? <laughs> the thing he really does is remarkable. Pass off to Tommy. And he sort of, he sort of um, like feels like Trey has something in common maybe with Cody Kilby and, and maybe something like Jake Eddie's coming through now. There's a certain speed and cleanliness. I think what you, said, yeah. what you said, yeah, what you said before was a great, um, you said, I think you would use the word articulate, articulated. And there's definitely, there's that quality about it, isn't there? It's not, you don't. Yeah, there is. It, it feels just solid and the, you don't, it doesn't feel like he's fighting to get it out. It feels like it's, you know. I think the interesting in thing about Betray is that he doesn't lose, you know, with that, with that, you know, amazing amount of precision and like tone production he has, he doesn't really lose, um, kind of like that vibe or that feel or anything. It still feels very like human. Um, I think some of those other players that we're talking about, like Cody Kilby, Jake Workman, that kind of player of like just hot shot bluegrass player that plays with, you know, a list national band. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they almost feel like machines, which is very cool. I'm not knocking that. I mean, that's remarkable in its own right, but they, it, it almost feels like it's programmed or something. You know, they like go through it so fast and so clean. Everything's just so, and even though Trey plays that cleanly, he doesn't feel like a robot to me, you know? Yeah, it is. It's a really interesting, um, just a really interesting mix. He feels like a, you know, uh, like all of us are as musicians, but just taking a whole load of stuff and put it together to sound like himself. Yeah, yeah, he really has. Um, taking, taking this back to one of the other passages I showed earlier, um, I pointed out that Billy Strings would go up the neck with like this repeated shape, right? And I said like the modern bluegrass player would play this line, right? Something like that. Um, a lot of times Trey Hensley will subvert that too, right? Let's do a third option, the Trey Hensley option. Um, a lot of times Trey will do that um, using these kind of diagonal pentatonic boxes, um, which is a very like country guitar player thing to do. Just so we don't get demonetized, I won't say it, but there's a popular country song that starts like that. 
a great example of that technique. Right, that's the kind of thing that Trey will do, um, which is right, like a third option. <laughs> and it's almost it's yeah, very cool. and it's almost like it's almost like position shifting on a mandolin, in that you're you're going between you're using slides and exactly fingering is, to yeah. get between different positions rather than playing lines that move through those positions or just sliding shapes up and down. It's you know, there's definite pockets within the neck that you're moving between. Yeah, if you're imagining, uh, if you are a mandolin player or if you have some understanding of mandolin, um, you you have these pentatonic scales that have like three notes on a string, then two notes on a string, then three notes on a string, then two notes on a string. And um, in the case of the mandolin, it kind of leads you diagonally um, kind of in the wrong direction, as in when you get higher up the neck, you end up on a lower string. On the guitar, since it's upside down, as you go higher up the neck, you end up on a higher string, right? It's sort of all in line with how you'd expect it to go. So, mm. um, yeah, that's why country guitar players do that. It takes advantage of that principle. Um, yet another, yet another country guitar thing that Trey does is the country, uh, sixth interval, which mm. you've heard from like this lick. like the beginning of Lovesick Blues, Hank Williams. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Trey will do those too. So you can imagine Trey coming out of like a five chord and playing six. Getting to the one chord and playing bends. And maybe he wants to continue and he uses a diagonal pentatonic. That's like all very Trey Hensley stuff to do. Um, and that's, you know, kind of like the Billy Strings example. These aren't specific songs or anything. I'm just taking in what I know and yeah, trying yeah. to replicate kind of choices they make. It's very cool. And and there is obviously that, um, there is that Tony Rice influence. I remember another interview that I remember Trey talking about Tony and saying somebody had given him a, a cassette that had Manzanita on it. And from the first few notes, he was just sort of hooked. And he said, um, he, I think he said the actual line, I have to limit my Tony Rice intake. Um, yeah. instead, of, instead of I'm on stage and can't hear myself, if a song kicks off too quick, I just go into Tony Rice mode. It's like a nervous tick or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He was talking about, um, in, in an interview with me, he was talking about how he gets stressed out when, um, when they're playing Tony Rice is like the pre-show music at his shows. And he's like, he can't listen to it because if he listens to it, he'll end up playing like Tony Rice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's very good at replicating uh, Tony Rice's style too. You know, there's sort of classic Tony licks that that I guess we'll get to later, but uh, but Trey does them very, very easily, very well. Also, here, here's an interesting fact about Trey and how his brain works. Trey doesn't read tab. Trey doesn't read sheet music. He he sort of doesn't do that and. If he does it at all, he does it very slowly from what he's told me. And, um, but that doesn't stop him from having this like encyclopedic knowledge of all these breaks. So, mm. um, I've heard him talk about certain cuts of like bluegrass album band or, you know, Tony Rice plays and sings. And, um, Trey will not only play Tony's break and be like, Oh, this is what Tony played and just nail it. But then he'll also be like, yeah, and then the mandolin break goes, and the mandolin break goes like this, and he'll play the mandolin break on guitar, right? So he, <laughs> I don't know how he does it, but he's just 
osmosis up all of this <laughs> sort of material. And he can, he can just like replicate multiple people's break off of the same cut. It's very impressive. It's incredible. Isn't it? And I think that's the thing is, you know, um, it's, it took me a while to get my head around that, that if you're going to go, uh, you could say looking for influences or you could call it shoplifting from people, people's records. Like don't just yeah. shoplift from the guitar parts. There's, you know, so my favorite breaks on bluegrass songs are like, you know, there's an amazing Jason Carter fiddle break on one of the tunes on Steve Earle's bluegrass album. There's some great yeah. mandolin breaks on some of the Tony Rice stuff. There's, you know, it's, and, and Trey talks about, you know, going off and listening to jazz guitarists or saxophonists or, you know, he, he's, he, I get the sense that he's always looking for a new inspiring thing. He's not content just to sit back and listen to what he listens to. He's always looking for a new sound, a new thing. Yeah, right. Trey, Trey really does listen to everything. And a good example of that is the, um, what's that thing that sequestered songwriters think Trey used to do all these live streams on Facebook during the, the, the height of the pandemic. And, um, he, uh, he, he would do these like kind of dedicated sets to different singers and it was kind of all over the map, right? It would be like singer songwriters or like country artists or bluegrass artists. And he would just put together and perform, you know, just live on Facebook, an entire hour or more of material just from one artist. Right. And, um, yeah, once again, his brain works in a very interesting way. I don't know how he remembers all that material or how he has arrangements of all that cooked up. Um, but I, I get the feeling that if you just ran into Trey and you were like, Hey, can you play obscure cut from Merle Haggard? I bet he could just shocking. <laughs> it's one of the, it's one of the things that I know again, we'll probably talk about this later. We talk about Tony, but he's, he's pointed out particularly how much Tony's rhythm playing is important to him. And it's something when I interviewed Chris Eldridge a while ago, he said, like, I love Tony's lead playing, but I would take the rhythm playing if I had to choose. And then, yes, and we'll, we'll no doubt come on to them. We talk about Tony, but it's he's maybe one of those players that people do talk about the rhythm playing as much as the lead playing, which is not traditionally the way it goes. <laughs> no, they they really do. Um, Trey's rhythm playing is, I think, is really interesting because he's always playing in um, in the duo with Rob Ikes, right? Mm. And that means that uh, at least in their in their live performances on the album, they have a bunch of other instruments. But in the live performances, his rhythm playing is really exposed and you can actually soak it all up um, when you listen to like Tony's rhythm playing, you know, except for like Skaggs and Rice and Church Street Blues. I mean, it's hard to get the rhythm playing because, you know, he's a banjo player in the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Half my, half my um, man's Anita. Yeah, I think Trey is a little bit of a uh, a rhythm chameleon, hmm. and that's that's a big uh, compliment, right? I think he really plays the rhythm style that suits the song, and he kind of nails it. When he's doing Tony material, he plays rhythm like Tony. When he's doing country material, you know, he's probably imitating some country rhythm player that I don't know the name of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I know just sort of got so much out of just preparing for this chat that we're having because the, of the players that we're talking about Trey's the one that I knew least and it's just got me mm -hmm. diving in a bit more and I've just enjoyed it and just want to sort of dive in deeper and learn more now he's he's a fascinating player and, and seems to be a fascinating character as well yeah if you haven't heard Trey at all um I think one of the the funniest introductions to Trey is to go watch um him play Freeborn Man on this like morning country show and the video has a really clickbait title. It's like amazingly fast bluegrass pickers or something, you know, all caps. 
but he's uh, he's playing uh, Freeborn Man for uh, it's two names. It's someone and something in the morning. It's like a Nashville station. I can't think of it. But uh, yeah, he <laughs> he goes out and he just crushes it. It's like eight a.m. <laughs> and uh, and I asked him about that performance, and I think he's a little embarrassed by it. I think he thinks he could have done better. But it is such a great introduction. You know, it's just like someone's you know camera phone of him in the in the radio station, and he's just killing it. <laughs> It's just so good. Uh, and maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea. It's a very aggressive kind of sound, but it's very cool. It's always exciting to hear that done. Yeah. So next person we've got on the list um, is somebody else who sort of like Billy Strings is is everywhere right now and is, is sort of bringing people in and, and crossing over between bluegrass and non-bluegrass audiences, and that's Molly Tuttle. And, yeah. you know, she's... Sort of fascinating in so many ways. There's the obvious sort of claw hammer guitar thing to talk about, but she's again also very clean, articulate player, um, and and as has what most probably most guitar teachers would point to as a relatively unorthodox right hand technique in terms of how her arms placed and where her wrist is, and and totally. but, but it doesn't seem to hold her back in the slightest. You know, to to talk about Molly. This isn't to toot my own horn. I think most people would look at my YouTube channel and be like, okay, Marcel can play a guitar. But on my, on my YouTube channel, there's lots of videos of me playing note for note along with Billy Strings. There's lots of videos of me going note for note with Trey Hensley, going note for note with Tony Rice. And like, maybe not 100%, but let's say, you know, at least 95% nailing what they did. And there are very few videos of me nailing what Molly Tuttle does. She terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult to replicate uh, what Molly Tuttle does. And uh, I think if you go back and you look at the videos of me trying to play along to Molly Tuttle, you'll see that I haven't done a particularly great job. <laughs> <laughs> and what, uh, what is it makes that so hard? Is it the right hand? I think it is. She has a, um, well, to talk about why her right hand's unique before we get into the tough stuff. Um, yeah, she has a habit of kind of anchoring sort of like right below your thumb, kind of in the meat of your palm right there. She'll mm -hmm. anchor right there on the bridge pins when she plays. And there's a video that Troy Grady has done where he's got the camera looking down the fretboard. And you can see she plays very open when she's playing rhythm. And then when she goes to play lead, she kind of clamps down. And the reason we don't normally teach that um, is because any kink uh, in your arm is potentially where you might you know, damage your tendons or something. People get tendonitis and stuff from that. Repetitive motion injuries when their arms aren't straight. Just like typing on your keyboard, right? And so uh, normally we don't teach people to push in there because there's the potential for your wrist to collapse. And, you know, you literally have a tunnel in there. You're bending the tunnel, carpal tunnel. Mm. <laughs> and uh, when Molly does that, though, it doesn't seem like her wrist is really collapsing. So I don't want to misrepresent her technique, but she does push her hand down on those bridge pins. She just doesn't like curve it in. I'm showing you as we do this talk, but I know that people won't be able to see this. <laughs> but um, if you go if you go and watch videos of uh, of Molly playing, it's pretty obvious what Marcel's talking about, I think. Um but but there's also the sort of the forearm placement. It's most players tend to rest the upper arm on the top of the guitar, leaving the the arm to sort of swing free. And and Molly sort of rests the top bit of a forearm on the guitar almost. It's a very um the whole the whole thing looks very constricted, and yet she has utter freedom to do whatever it is she yeah. wants to do. 
you know, some of that just just from having taught lots of people, some of that is just you know bodies being built differently. Mm. You know, like a D twenty eight is always the same size, and uh, and everyone's forearms are a slightly different length. So you see people sort of have to you know cradle up to the guitar in different ways to get their arm kind of in that right position. And um, I guess I've I've never met Molly in person, so um, I don't know. But in the footage that I've seen, it kind of seems like, you know, just just the shape and size of your body and like how your limbs are proportioned kind of affects how that happens. And it seems like that's what's going on to me rather than like a um, a quirk of technique. I think she's just, you know, not built like any of these other players. Yeah. And I think it's just I think the, the cool thing about all of it is that there is sort of quote unquote correct form for everything. And but there's there are players through the years who do extraordinary things and are utterly themselves without needing to conform to all of that. And it's, you know, they're, yeah, they're, right. they're sort Everyone, of guidelines and averages. They're not necessarily hard, fast rules. That's such a nice way to look at it. Yeah. You're, uh, you, the, the only danger you run is that you like a guitar player so much that you start practicing their quirks and you, you shouldn't practice people's quirks. You should look at the averages. Like you said, you should try to shoot for this idealized technique and if you have something that doesn't work out perfectly, that's fine. That's your quirk, right? Hmm. Um, and so, you know, like if we go through some of these other players, we talked about Billy Strings in his early years when he was playing, he'd flex every muscle in his entire body. <laughs> I would consider that a quirk, right? Don't copy that. It's probably not healthy. He doesn't do it anymore, um, which is probably best for his body. Um, or someone like um, Tony's kind of got this weird thumb thing where like hmm. as he's picking, he rocks his thumb back and forth that doesn't make you play like Tony. Don't copy that. Um, and similarly for Molly, right? This like super hard plant on the bridge pins, which actually I kind of do, if I'm being honest, um, <laughs> is probably not the thing to copy either. Um, the quirk of my own that people always point out is that sometimes when I should use my ring finger, I use my pinky instead in my uh, uh. left hand fretting work. And people are always like, Oh, why'd you use that finger? And I don't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the thing. It's, uh, you know, yeah, it's, don't don't copy the quirks. I mean, I think once you get to a certain point of having played for an amount of time, it's it can be quite hard to explain to people how you do what you do. I interviewed um, Happy Tram from Homespun fairly recently. Yeah. And he was talking about working with Tony Rice and saying that you know he he ended up sitting in and sort of interviewing him because Tony couldn't necessarily explain how he was doing what he was doing. You know, he could, he'd say, "I'll try and slow it down and show you as much as I can to the best of my ability," but. It's just sort of how I did it. And um, there's a great moment in one of those. I think it's Happy that's interviewing Tony, and um, Tony plays an interesting chord shape. And um, Happy says, "Like, oh, isn't that like an A nine?" And Tony says, "Well, it's an A seven chord." And if you know anything about theory, you know that A nine and A seven are very closely related, right? An A nine chord does the same thing as an A seven chord. It's just got one extra note in it. And, um, but, but that doesn't like click with Tony, right? He's just like, no, in my brain, this is a seven. And you can see that it's kind of like a struggle in the interview where like happy wants to convey all the information to the watcher, like, oh, it's an A nine chord. And Tony's like, no, it's not. It's an a seven, which isn't technically correct, <laughs> but, but what are you going to do? Are you going to say, are you going to say no to Tony Rice? No, you let it slide. The interesting information in all of those kind of conversations is not necessarily what it is or what it isn't, but how he approaches it. And it's like, that's the insight, isn't it? It's what he's thinking when he's doing it is, 
Yeah, but, right. you know, in his that brain, this, yeah, it this is, is how he's using it. And it's exactly <laughs> used to argue with Tony Rice's brain. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, to Molly. yeah, and <laughs> and so, sort of that sort of aside, one of the most striking things I think that um, people hear first in maybe not maybe not so much now because Molly's got this sort of more straight bluegrass album, um, Crooked Tree, which is glorious. Um, <laughs> but but still on that, there's the sort of the claw hammer technique on guitar, which is not something she invented. Um, it's something, you know, she came across and, and decided to learn, but it's, it's a very distinctive sound and very much part of what she's become known for. Yeah. It's a, it's a remarkable technique. I, I wish I could replicate it for the listeners at home, but I cannot. Uh, and I've tried. Um, it's, uh, yeah. It's, so it's a, it's like an old time banjo technique, right? This claw hammer thing. Uh, and <laughs> there's, there's lots of different, uh, kind of little segments of this technique. And Molly must have learned this at some point, you know, as a child and just converted it to guitar because there's videos of her very young doing this claw hammer guitar thing. It's not, it's not something she came across as an adult. This is a, um, sort of a combination, you know, like technique for another instrument on guitar hmm. um, that she figured out when she was quite young. And it's, it's sort of, slightly altered tuning she used as well. It's essentially an open G tuning, but with the B string tuned up to a C. So there's no open thirds in the tuning at all. So it's got that sort of slightly more, I think she describes it as... Yeah, that um, kind of sound, yeah. I think she describes it as mountain minor tuning at one point. That <laughs> just, you know, it takes out, it, it leaves that ambiguity in there. Uh, but yeah, go and, like, go and Google Molly Tuttle Clawhammer and, and see what it is we're talking about. Because the first, or the only time I've seen Molly... Um, was over here in the UK as part of the Transatlantic Sessions tour a few years ago. Oh, right. And um, the first song she did was Take the Journey, which and I'd never seen anybody play a guitar like that in my life, you know, sort of slightly gobsmacked by the clarity and the, the drive of it and just the the sort yeah. of, you know, the amount of poke in it, really. It's like a very driving, hard sound. It's, it's, it's a remarkable sound. Um and if you're if you're going that down that rabbit hole, I highly suggest you watch the music video for Take the Journey because it's this very weird like truck commercial. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. The the music video is for sure sponsored by like Chevy or something. And it's Molly Tuttle just like banging out this remarkable song and then like, you know, trucks cruising through the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Molly. I hope you made a lot of money on that one. <laughs> <laughs> So, so aside from some of the technical stuff, what is it about um, like when you transcribe Molly's playing? What is it you hear in there, and what is it you find in there that that you don't find anywhere else? Yeah, what she's better at than than you know a lot of modern players, or like you know her her like particular strength and superpower on the guitar is how strong her alternate picking is. And so if you, if you, you know, hold a pick in your hand and you imagine the motion, if you're doing like true, honest, alternate picking, as you play a downstroke, your pick should point towards the floor. And as you play an upstroke, your pick points towards the ceiling. Not that dramatically, right? As you play faster, that little arc gets tighter and tighter. So maybe it's, you know, only 20 degrees or something, right? It's mm. not as dramatic. Maybe not even that. And um, if you watch Molly do that, specifically when she's like cross-picking, when she's going past different strings, you can imagine that as you play downstroke, 
your pick has to clear the strings so you can hit the upstroke on the next lower string. So if it was like E string and B string, right, or two highest strings, downstroke on the E string, pick points towards the floor so I can clear the E string to hit upstroke on the B string, right? It's this kind of like dangerous motion so you can not get caught up on anything. And if you try to play that with your sloppy technique like me, um, it's a mess. You end up hitting all these extra strings because you don't have enough clearance. You haven't like rotated for the alternate picking enough. And Molly nails it all the time, which means like David Greer, for instance, is she can play these big string skips and just have this laser accuracy. She's got her guitar in drop D. She hits the low D and then comes up and just like snipes the B string with an upstroke, right? It's like, how did you just, how did you just catch that so cleanly? You know, I try to do that and I'm like accidentally grabbing my E string, accidentally grabbing the G string. She's just got like perfect accuracy. And so a lot of these breaks that you look at, especially her arrangements of fiddle tunes, these obscure fiddle tunes, she does like an obscure Norwegian one. Um, that I won't even try to pronounce, but maybe if you type in Molly Tuttle Norwegian fiddle tune, you'll find it. Um, you know, she, she's got all these moments where she's skipping strings, she's jumping around. She kind of plays it in a way that no one else can do it. It's remarkable. Mm. And I've transcribed a lot of them. I can look at what she's doing and write it down on paper, but then I go to play it and I realize that this is a pipe dream. This <laughs> is so difficult. <laughs> Does that make it hard uh, to transcribe them? Because there are sort of some, some, jumps and movements going on that you just wouldn't expect you know sometimes but it's uh you can write down stuff for you can write down stuff that you can't play um you know i transcribed like banjo breaks and i've transcribed like uh uh like jazz saxophone players and stuff before and i can't play those instruments but i, I can write down what they're doing hmm. um i guess there is a little bit of like a like a topographical thing of the fretboard where like I hear a note and I would expect it to be in a certain place, but maybe she's grabbed it somewhere else. Sometimes that happens, but um, that's, that's not the difficult part. The difficult part is having to play it yourself after the transcription's done. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, like obviously Molly's got this, this new record, which is much more bluegrass than the previous ones. And um, it's yeah. just, you know, it's, it's glorious hearing her in that context. But it's one of the, the sort of interesting things of the modern world, really. Is like, so Trey Hensley, for example, if you go and listen to his recorded catalogue, there's not that much straight bluegrass in there. There's a lot more country, blues, sort of. Yeah. Um, but but we have the joy of being able to go online and see all these players playing lots of fiddle tunes and things they haven't recorded or, you know, sort of officially put out. There's just so much material out there now, and you get to see people play in all these different contexts. And Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really cool. And um, just hearing Molly sort of recently just doing stuff with a, with a straight-ahead bluegrass band is such a glorious sound. I think that that was a kind of, um, you know, you said Billy Strings was divisive. I think that this is a divisive move. Um, and uh, let me say it this way. You know, if, if Billy Strings is bringing this jam band thing, Transley is bringing this kind of like country influence, I think Molly Tuttle was bringing in kind of a pop influence, which mm -hmm. I thought was very interesting on her records before Crooked Tree. Do I love hearing her play bluegrass? Yeah, I love hearing her play bluegrass. Do I always want to hear her play bluegrass? I mean, yeah, probably. But but it's really cool to have an artist like breaking into like newer territory. And she was certainly doing that um, kind of on her last record in the, the record of covers too. It yeah, had like yeah. some distorted guitar and stuff on it. Yeah. Um, those are, those, 
those are experimental records. And I think that experimentation should kind of be praised, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think there's some, some really cool artists around who we like to think of as bluegrass artists and can totally do that, but don't always do it. So for example, I, and Sarah Jaros, for example, can play yeah. bluegrass mandolin with the best of them. And yeah, if you listen to her records, they're not really bluegrass records. Or Sierra Hull's recent records, you know, the last couple of albums are not blue. They're just songs arranged the way she hears them. Um, and I think yeah. that's brilliant. You know, and Nickel Creek, for all the success, were never really at any point a straight-haired bluegrass band. They very much no. straddled that that line between acoustic music, pop. You know, it, it just it does what it does. I... And I, I, I struggle with that because I love traditional bluegrass. But, you know, you, you ask yourself that question sometimes, like, do we need another recording of Red Haired Boy? Probably not. Um, you know, are we going to play it at the jam? Maybe. But, like, do we need to sit down and, like, cut that one? I don't think so. Um, so, you know, every once in a while, someone really nails it on a record. Bluegrass Album Band is a great example, right, where Tony Rice you know, cuts a bunch of classic bluegrass tunes or um, uh, like the Chris Lealy, Michael Dave's record, Sleep With One Eye Open. Yeah. And they cut a bunch of traditional material and they just crushed it. And it, it's kind of like a a statement like, hey, we normally do slightly weirder stuff, but like, here's us doing the trad stuff. I think that's what Molly has done here. I think she's going to go back to doing kind of the pop influence stuff. She's just like, hey, by the way, I can still do bluegrass. Right. Yeah, totally. And it's that, um, it's that thing of, uh, maybe Brian Sutton's um, Not Too Far From The Tree record is a good example of that as well. They're just straight ahead fiddle tune playing on guitars that totally, that's a record totally we needed to hear, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And, it, and I think we do like to sort of shackle people to things sometimes. The, the amount of people who say Punch Brothers are great, I wish they'd play more bluegrass, or the amount of people who would, you know, want Molly Tuttle to play more bluegrass, or the amount of people who... You know, uh, this exists in the jazz world as well. There's lots of people who appreciate oh, yeah. modern players, but just want them to play 1950s jazz. And <laughs> you know, yeah, we've we, got... we we really need another recording of Scrapple from the Apple. We exactly. really need another recording of Donnelly. I don't think uh, so. And that's all there. And there's some great stuff, and you can go back and listen to it whenever you want. Um, yeah, and it is particularly with something like bluegrass. You know, uh, a couple of the artists we're talking about today probably Trey Hensley. Y- not really a bluegrass artist. He's a very good bluegrass guitar player, but he's also much more as is Molly Tuttle. And I mean, Tony Rice made whole albums of music that you couldn't even vaguely describe as bluegrass. Yeah. You know, I, uh, you know, personal anecdotal evidence here, but, uh, you know, I put out my record recently, which is very like uh, Newgrass revival inspired. Um, I guess we put it out last year, but it, it's got a lot of, you know, kind of 80s drum sounds on it and nothing's arranged really as a bluegrass song, but it's all bluegrass instruments. And um, yeah, let me tell you, those were the comments that I got immediately where like, hey, the album's good, but you need to ditch those drums. <laughs> you know, I got, I got comments like that. And I thought that was funny, you know, because everyone's kind of looking for the next new thing. And like, what did you want? Did you want me to record the album with Red Haired Boy on it? I I don't, I don't think you would have been satisfied with that either. Yeah. Um, so I think we end up with a lot of bluegrass artists that are kind of in that, uh, in between the rock and the hard place, right? Do, do I release the progressive album that I want to do or do I do the traditional album? Because both of them are going to receive some amount of, um, you know, hate from the audience, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms, like in terms of Molly, we talked a little bit about Billy and Trey and sort of note choices and sort of style of the kind of licks they use. And is there any thought, sort of particular signature Molly things that that make Molly sound hers? Yeah, this is this is great. You know, I gave examples of the other players, and it's like give a Molly example. Like I haven't played my guitar once. Um, <laughs> yeah, one one really. Uh, great thing about Molly's playing is how well she crosspicks and how fast she can crosspick. Mm. Not that it's about speed or anything, but one of the limitations of crosspicking is that you normally can't do it very quickly. It's kind of a speed restricted item to add to your brakes. Things get too fast and you can't really crosspick anymore. And Molly Tuttle seems to have no such limitation, (laughs) which I find really remarkable. Um, But the patterns aren't super interesting to bring up because they're kind of classic crosspicking patterns, right? These like... kind of stuff but you know molly's doing it at you know 5,000 bpms Mm. um so if there you know if there was anything that uh you know that 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 i could steal from molly as a player right if i could like you know space jam you touch the basketball and you get all the skills of the famous player if i could do that with molly tuttle it would probably be the cross picking that i'd i'd really want to steal she's just remarkable at it um and also you know to, to talk about crosspicking, it's kind of a, a dated art form. There, there was a long time when, when it wasn't looked at so favorably. Like if you look at, you know, 80s bluegrass, there's not a lot of crosspicking happening because they were looking at it as like, oh, that's the old school. We don't want to do that. I guess except for like Tony Rice's Church Street Blues, but that's kind of like anti-crosspicking in a way. Like there is no straight pattern. It's like constantly moving around mm-hmm. and shifting. He doesn't play a strict pattern. And Molly's, in a way, kind of bringing that back. Billy does it, too, to an extent, but Molly does it more traditionally, um, where it is a straight pattern that she's nailing. I she did so. uh, an interview with uh, Acoustic Guitar Magazine where she wrote an arrangement of Wildwood Flower that was cross-picking. And um, it's a beautiful, very clever, smart arrangement that uses, like, forward rolls, backwards rolls. There's a square roll in there. It's got some string skipping. It's remarkably clever and very traditional at the same time. And she probably deserves more credit for that. She does it better than anyone else. And this this cool thing is, you know, we're talking about Molly and, and Billy as being progressive and sort of moving between genres. And, and yeah, they're both, both of them use cross-picking a lot. It's something that, that you know, and, and it may well be that in five, 10 years, everybody cross-picks because Billy Strings and Molly Tuffle cross-picks. It's come back. You know, yeah, yeah. It, may, it may be one of those things again. Um, which sort of, sort of brings to, us time to start practicing cross picking, then. Do you know, it's, get in early. <laughs> it's definitely definitely something that I've neglected. I think I think of all the the sort of disciplines in flat picking that I, I've sort of I've spent quite a lot of time looking at rhythm. I've spent a lot of time working on sort of tone and a lot of time thinking about note choices and understanding the fretboard. Not, but I've never really spent much time on cross picking. Um, but one thing I love is that that example you gave of. Tony Rice Church Street Blues and also on the same record there's things like One More Night and where it's almost it's sort of half cross picking half rhythm playing it's it's just it's sort of bringing out a melody and something and adding some texture to it and it's sort of unique the way he does it Um, which leads us sort of nicely onto Tony I think because it sort of it feels at the moment and maybe this is partly because we we lost him so recently and there's been such an outpouring of just affection and, and attention 
um, for Tony for the last couple of years. But it feels at the moment that all bluegrass guitar conversations lead back to Tony Rice in some form. Um, yeah, but every, maybe, every that, time. maybe that will always be the way it is. Maybe that's all, <laughs> you know, maybe that's been the way it was for a, a long time. And I'm just not as deeply into the bluegrass guitar thing for as long as, as a lot of people. Um, but it's, you know, it's such I started, a... I started referring to it as like the pre-Tony Rice period and the post-Tony Rice period <laughs> because it feels so distinct. You know, suddenly everyone wants to play like Tony. It's weird. Hmm. And there's, there's definite sense of that. Um, and one, one of the things that Tony sort of brought to black picking and to bluegrass was that sort of, you know, this, a sort of lick-based improvisational approach rather than a melodic approach necessarily. And a lot of flat thirds, a lot of flat sevenths, a lot of, you know, sort of a, an approach maybe slightly more based on a vocabulary of licks and how we use them. Yeah, and you, right. might, you might get with certain other players. Yeah, I think that, you know, Tony, Tony's at the forefront of something, right? Something very interesting when, when he's releasing his first albums. And when you think about all of the bluegrass instruments, they all have something that they're uh, kind of well-suited for. The banjo is well-suited for, like, arpeggios, right? And that's mm-hmm. why we have, like, three-finger rolls and, like, a lot of it's chord-based up to a point, right? And then, uh, you know, for the, the mandolin, right? The mandolin does like tremolo. We have our strings and choruses, you know, there's sort of a mandolin sound. We expect mandolins are also great for playing fiddle tunes. Really easy to get a melody out on a mandolin, just like on a fiddle. Fiddle also can be microtonal, right? So things can be slightly out of tune in a way that feels good. Uh, they can also play notes for an indefinite amount of time. The only instrument that can do that. My fiddle can play a note that lasts forever just by recycling their bow motion. Hmm. Um, so there's lots of interesting things that different instruments have to their benefit. And the guitar didn't really have that. The guitar doesn't have a distinct voice um, until we get players like Clarence White and Tony Rice. And what the, <laughs> what, what the big innovation was, not really an innovation, but is basically blues and chromaticism. And the reason that's so remarkable from all those players is that no other instrument is suited well to do it. So on the mandolin, the fingering works out in such a way that it's difficult to play chromatic things, right? Your first finger is covering two frets. Your second finger is covering two frets. Your third mm. finger is covering two frets. If you have to play a chromatic scale, a lot of these fingers are doing double duty. It makes it kind of difficult. On the fiddle, I mean, you have no frets, right? So it's hard to get chromatic things in tune. Mm. On the banjo, once again, it's all chord-based. So we're certainly not playing chromatic things up to a point, right? Banjo does have a breakthrough later on. But in this time period... Um, Really, guitar is the only instrument that can do it. So when you think about that aggressive, chromatic, bluesy, Tony Rice sound, it's kind of breaking into this forefront of like, ah, this is like the thing that only guitar can do. And suddenly it feels like guitar has a superpower along with the rest of them, right? Yeah. Um, So you can imagine a lot of these licks you associate with Tony Rice, this kind of like, uh, you know... sound um, has a lot of chromatic moments in it. D, C sharp, D. And if you had to play those three notes in a row, like on a fiddle or a mandolin or a banjo, they might struggle to make that as clean as Tony Rice can with a flat pick. And so he, uh, it's kind of like everyone's fighting different battles and Tony found the like one that he can win at. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because, he, you know, people 
talk about about Tony and his sort of incredible style and personality and the way he played. And, and you know, we've all, I'm sure, heard the the stories of him saying, basically, I ended up playing the way I played because I tried to play like Clarence and couldn't. And yeah. you know, just finding it's that it's that thing, isn't it? Of, of like going back to talking about artists who are or aren't bluegrass or where people fit. You just you and talk about Trey Hensley. You take on a bunch of stuff and you find the thing that's your thing and amongst all of it. Yeah, and he found a thing that was that very much the, his thing. Yeah, the 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 progression from Clarence to Tony, um, which is which is I think kind of a soft spot. People are real sore about that. You have real. Clarence White fans that are like, no, Clarence invented all of it. He deserves more, rec- uh, you know, recognition. And then you have Tony Rice fans that are like, no, Tony Rice expanded on it in such a way that that he is the hero. And um, it'll probably be a never-ending argument. I don't really want to take stake in that. But <laughs> what I will say is that there, um, uh, a lot of the language is similar. So undeniably, Tony Rice borrowed a lot of Clarence language to get started, which is fine. It's good. It's what everyone does. Um, but I think Tony's execution is really what sets it apart. Um, and so Clarence has a way of like playing with time. Clarence will play things way behind the beat or way ahead of the beat. Um, and in such a way that feels very dramatic and bluesy, it feels like an electric guitar player, which we know Clarence was as well. Right. Um, Tony has a way of dictating the beat much clearer. So even when he is playing with time, he's playing syncopated things, you know, a bunch of statements start on the and as opposed to on the beat still very much in time. Mm. And though he may push and drag here and there, it's not as dramatic as Clarence. And uh, similarly, kind of like I talked about that tonal production of certain notes being louder or quieter, that can be a really interesting uh, technique to use in, uh, especially in like early bluegrass or pre-bluegrass, you hear guitar players do that. And Tony kind of tones that down, right? Tony, though he does have notes that like pop out of the mix and like, whoa, right, what happened there? Um, there is like a general consistency much more than any guitar player before him. Um, sort of, you know, towards that Trey Hensley or Jake Workman or Cody Gilby end of the spectrum, right? Where they have this mm. really clear dictated tone. Um, Tony's kind of moving in that direction, right? He's kind of inventing that. <laughs> um, so while, while Clarence is a huge influence, there's like really characteristic differences in like time and tone between Clarence and Tony, that's just undeniable. You can hear it in the recordings. And so in, in a way, it's almost like the, what I just explained, this like bluesy note choice thing. Maybe that wasn't the thing that really did it, you know, because there was a player doing it before Tony. Maybe the thing that really did it was just Tony doing it cleaner. Hmm. Or not cleaner, but in a way that suited the rest of Bluegrass, you know, uh, a little better. Yeah, and as you throw out music, there's sort of examples of people who haven't necessarily invented anything but have just taken stuff to the next level like mozart didn't invent any of the forms he composed in but he excelled at every he took them all forward the beatles like the beatles put together country and rock and roll and rhythm and blues and stuff that they'd learned to play cabaret and added in their own thing and took it somewhere entirely different but it didn't they didn't start off with anything particularly new they just took a bunch of existing forms and did them in a way nobody else had done them and we, we can say that about a lot of influential early bluegrass musicians, right? We know that Earl Scruggs is like the king of three-finger banjo, but he isn't the first person to play three-finger. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, uh, what's his name? Scruffy Jenkins? Something like that. <laughs> I don't remember his name. There's a player before Earl Scruggs that, that did kind of a similar style. And I'm not saying that 
you know, Earl Scruggs, you know, suddenly isn't one of the fathers of bluegrass because of that. No, it's just how it works, right? You like hear someone else doing it and you're like, great, I can do that better. Watch me, <laughs> you know, and you, you try to prove to the world that you're better at this thing, whether you are or aren't. And, uh, that's, I think that's what the situation Tony was in, right? He loves Clarence. He loves his playing. He's going to like get what he can out of it. And then he's going to be like, all right, but I'm Tony. How can I be the best Tony? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and also like, look, so thinking about what we were talking about with Trey earlier, a really wide range of, you know, it certainly feels when you read and listen to things about Tony that he spent most of his time listening to jazz, not listening to, to bluegrass sitting in his later years anyway. That just, you know, the influences oh, yeah. came from all over the place. Yeah, Tony, if you listen to his uh, song selection too, you, you know, Tony didn't write a lot of uh, vocal tunes. Um, I think the only one that I know off the top of my head for sure is Never Meant to Be, which he wrote about his divorce. It's on the singer-songwriter collection. Um, that's kind of the, like the big Tony Rice vocal tune that he actually wrote. All the mm -hmm. others are, are covers, and the covers are from a big range of sources. A lot of them are like just singer-songwriters like Gordon Lightfoot or James Taylor, or Jim Croce. Um, some of them were like rock and roll tunes, right? Some of them, yeah, right. Some of the instrumentals were jazz tunes. He does my favorite things. Mm. And, you know, there, there, there's lots of, uh, maybe the, the biggest compliment about uh, Tony's records is that he's really good at choosing songs for himself. Um, you know, if you're going to put together a record that's all you covering other people's material, Man, Tony Rice did that better than anyone. He picks good songs and songs that like suit him that he's just going to crush. I mean, to the point that people forget, I think sometimes how many of them are covers because they just feel like he owns them. Yeah, I had a student talking to me about Old Train, right? This uh, Tony Rice kid. And uh, he was like, yeah, if you play that at a jam, you know, you have to do the Tony Rice kick. That may be true, but I was like, hey, it's a, it's a seldom seen tune. Like it doesn't have to be. It wasn't a guitar kick there. Mm. Like someone else can kick that song off. <laughs> you don't have to play the Tony like. Uh, but but no one does that, right? Everyone plays it like Tony. It's it's become uh, Tony's tune. It's weird. Yeah, it's sort of same with with Church Street Blues, and despite the fact that we all know and love the Norman Blake version, and for a lot of people, Norman's is their favorite version, and you know, but uh -huh. it just becomes such an iconic thing. And I I. Remember I um, interviewed Bob Minner about his Norman Blake tribute record and he got Vince Gill to come in and sing Church Street Blues on that record and it's it's sort of quite nice hearing it treated just as a song because you get so used to hearing it as a sort of iconic piece of guitar playing which it is but yeah. there's no there's sort of no point note for note trying to do that because you're not going to do any better than that um so it's just nice it was really refreshing just to hear it treated as a song and just be sung you know, because it's a great song. I, I I tell everyone too that if you're if you're gonna work on Tony Rice's break, you're gonna be working on it for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people ask when the Church Street Blues video is coming out, and I'm still working on it, right? Yeah. Uh, but that uh, kind of coming back to our cross picking conversation, you know, I said that Church Street Blues was almost like anti cross picking. It's because normally these patterns come in like square chunks, right? Like we talked about the Billy Strings lick. And you can hear one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You can hear like the sort of like the banjo three finger roll, right? If you listen to the street blues, it has no three finger 
like repeated moment. There are moments. One, two, three. There's one. One, two, three. One, two, three. So these little segments that feel like three finger rolls, but the the tune itself is not like built on that principle solely. You know, it's got a lot of other like little lines that keep peeking out. It's like a tapestry of ideas. And that's, I think, why it's so charming. You listen to Tony Rice's version, you're like, whoa. Um, I think people people are so enchanted by the tune that they don't even realize how difficult it is. They're just like, wow, that's beautiful. You know, how do I play that? And then they look at it and they're like, oh, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should just listen to it. <laughs> it just sounds so... And, because, and I think you're right because like you saw that word tapestry used and because he's, he's not picking patterns and sticking with them because it's a sort of choice. He's each time he puts a pattern in there is because it's right for the rhythm that he's trying to create. And he wants this flow and he wants to just nudge the beat here or, you know, just take something across the bar line or whatever he's doing. And um because of that, they, they, they feel like he couldn't possibly have made any other choices than those. They feel so right and it feels so natural. And so it's, it is deceptive. And you listen to him and think, Oh, that's pretty simple, pretty little bit of guitar playing. No. And then you look at what he's at and then you think about, like pick direction and all of that as well, because there's some alternate picking, there's some, you know, some sort of swept. And in the same way that as a rhythm player, Tony would do that classic sort of um, bluegrass rhythm thing. Oh, and he, he would just put in all, in row, all down yeah. strokes. Yeah. In a way that, you know, and it's hard to do, but it sounds great. Yeah. It's very hard to do. I normally cheat it. I normally alternate pick it, um, which isn't, isn't the same sort of, uh, like feel at all. You can kind of hear the alternate picking, but, um, but I find that like, you know, like four downstrokes in a row, really hard to get in time. Yeah, it's um, the, the glorious thing about alternate picking is, you know, exactly where you are at any given time, because you've got this unbreakable sort of backwards, forwards, back pendulum sort of thing going on. And whatever beat it is you want to play, you know how you're supposed to play it. Whereas when you get into that stuff, it's, you know, it's getting the rhythm back is really hard. Yeah. Tony has a really interesting way of breaking the pick strokes. Church Street Blues is a really cool example. Um, but there's there's other examples of famous uh, Tony Rice licks too. So if you look at like the sort of the chorus section of that break, it's all alternate picked up. Right? It's all alternate picked down. Right? And then he starts doing the cross picking pattern down, down, up. Right? So it's it's kind of like a mix. All just chords. Right, and then you know, flat pick again. So he he is kind of like choosing his techniques. And it's not just in the Church Street Blue style, it's also in um in some of his like hot licks, he'll break pick stroke patterns. So for instance, this lick. We've all kind of seen Tony do something like that, right? And um, the the pattern is groups of three, like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And uh, instead of playing the correct alternate pick strokes, which would be down, up, up, down, down, up, up, down, right? He just plays down, up the whole time. Down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. Because in that lick, it kind of makes sense, right? If, if each one of these is like a three-note chunk, why don't I use the same pick strokes for each segment of the pattern? And so Tony is willing to break the alternate picking, you know, religion 
<laughs> for for these little licks, right? He's okay with that. Well, it's, it is a religion for sort of flat pick guitar, but you think about playing mandolin and if you're going to play an Irish jig, which is all in threes, then it's often down, up, down, down, up, down, down, up, because that fits the rhythm of what you're trying to do and it emphasizes right. the beats in the in the right place and it's got that sort of bowing quality to it that you would get if you played on a fiddle. And so none of these, all of them are rules and yet none of them are really rules. They're just conventions. Like we talked about <laughs> arm placement before and they're just um, they're techniques that work for most people, but they're there to be monkeyed with. I think that one of the interesting things about Tony as a player is that um, sort of being top of the pile in the way he was. Um, and and I, I'm reading into this. Maybe maybe this isn't how he felt at all. But, you know, looking at his catalog and knowing what I know about Tony and having read and seen what I've seen, um, I think that um, I think that in certain ways he felt out Tony'd. <laughs> and he certainly talks about that with the bluesy stuff, sort of that aggressive, you know, competitive uh, style that he had, you know, early on. And he, he did it throughout his life, but, you know, it's sort of the staple of his early playing, him playing like Freeborn Man. Um, you know, by the time Tony had been playing for a couple decades, there were lots of players doing that. And and he he says in an interview that he felt like there were people that were better at it than him. You know, that there were people that did this aggressive, dramatic thing better than him. And so I think it led to this like constant reinvention. And so like Tristry Blues comes out, it's an album of solo guitar. There isn't really an aggressive lick in that. Mm. You know, there's some moments that are like close, but that whole thing is pretty, um, is pretty tame in terms of like the flat five, flat seven, flat three, like that whole kind of thing. He's playing pretty straight ahead and he's still playing something that is very hard to replicate. And I think he reaches that point where people are starting to figure out Church Street Blues. And, uh, you know, in some of Tony's last outings, we see, you know, this like third style crop up, which is like chord melody bluegrass thing, how he plays Shenandoah, how he plays Danny mm. Boy. And that's kind of like, I think that's the last nut that's let to be cracked for, for Tony Rice. People ask me to transcribe those, by the way, and I always say no. Yeah. Um Right. If if someone's if someone's going to give that away to the world, it's not going to be me. Um, you know, let let Tony keep that one. You know, and you you look through his life and you see all of these like little reinventions and these little like additions to the Tony Rice style. We didn't even talk about the like Space Grass Tony Rice unit records, which is a whole other category that's very difficult to get into and understand the chord choices and the scale choices and stuff. But Tony is constantly like picking a new thing so that way. You know, the phony Tonys, the copycats can't keep up. And it's remarkable. And I truly think that no one has caught up with that Shenandoah. I, I, they even played it at the at IBMA. I think Chris Eldridge played it. I think Chris Eldridge played it at the uh, at the IBMA thing. And uh, it, it was a pretty good representation, but it didn't sound like Tony. I mean, I think, that was, I think that was the first time I saw any video footage of Tony playing was, I think it was at Grey Fox. There's a, blue, a DVD called Bluegrass Journey, which I think is a documentary about Gray Fox, essentially. But it's full of performances. And it's just, you know, and it's nighttime and Tony's just stood there, just him and that guitar. And yeah. in, in front of a festival audience where you could you could hear a pin drop and everybody's leaning in to hear and he takes his time and he lets it breathe and he just, you, there's times where it's such a familiar melody, but you don't necessarily know where the beat is or where the phrase but the, Super just, free, yeah. It's just phrases, and he decides how long a phrase needs to be, and then moves on to the next one. And it's it's an extraordinary thing. 
Yeah, he that that particular recording. I think it's from the Bluegrass Journey uh, documentary, and they um, they show a bunch of that footage. Um, yeah, like all you can hear is the rain. It's raining like crazy, yeah. and you can hear like the crickets in the background. And then it's just Tony Rice's guitar, and there's you know tons of people watching, and you don't hear a peep from them. Everyone's just dead silent. It's just rain and Tony. It's crazy. It's incredible. Um, so I think that's probably like I think we've covered. Oh, well, I, the one the one thing I was I was sort of going to say when we were talking about that, you were talking about the, the sort of the Tony clones, and it feels like there is a point where but people just take that style of sort of chromatic bluesy hard driving stuff and slap it on everything. And sometimes if I take a, I don't know, fiddle tune like St. Anne's reel, that is all major scale all the way through <laughs> has a melody, has some lovely melodic major key qualities to it. And, and maybe people wouldn't do it over St. Anne's reel, but you know what, you know where I'm going with it is that people take songs where that doesn't necessarily belong and just put it over everything. And it, it's become such a, a sort of stylistic can I, choice. Can I, do, can I do the demo? Yeah. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. And it, um, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's one of the things I sort of struggle with a little bit in my playing is that I tend to stick to major scales on, and I think I listen to myself and think you don't sound that bluegrass, you know. And it's but it's because I'm so conditioned to hear those some of those licks now as being what bluegrass guitar yeah, is, right. such as the all-encompassing power of it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, circling back on that conversation, isn't, isn't that what's interesting though? Or like, isn't that what feels like something a, a virtuoso would do on those instruments is to kind of tackle the thing that's difficult. So for instance, um, on the banjo, we said that this chord based arpeggio play is, you know, really what's kind of the instrument is made for. But you look at someone like Bela Fleck, plays a lot of single note lines. Mm. You're like, that's where you really get the gasps, right? You're like, whoa. Um, because he, you know the instrument like doesn't do that, and he can make the instrument do that. That's what's shocking. Or you hear um, uh, you hear like fiddle players, their instrument really isn't a rhythm instrument. You can't play chords on the fiddle. Some people have really, really kind of acrobatic kind of chop moves that they do to create almost like a drum set on the fiddle. It's remarkable. Um, so when you hear guitar players uh, kind of avoid the bluesy thing and still nail a tune, like David Greer playing any of these fiddle tunes and avoiding yeah. the bluesy thing, but playing really dense, lush arrangements, I mean, that's that's beautiful. <laughs> that's like, oh, you, you didn't take the easy way out. You could have just played blues, but you didn't. Yeah, totally, totally. And um, just it's, it's, and I guess, you know, basically what we've been talking about for all this time is style and note choice is a big part of that and tone is, and sometimes what you don't play is the choice you make and, you know, like Miles Davis leaving space and everything is, you, you know, it's not the million and one notes you do play. It's the three you play, like, or the space you leave in Shenandoah or it's all up for grabs. It's all there. And they're all, it's all those things that go to make style, which makes all four of these players so fascinating and makes learning to be a musician and find what your thing is in amongst all of that a bit daunting and a bit sort of, you know, but, but that's the journey, isn't it? Is to pick up all these things and then go, well, what do I sound like? Let's find out. There, there are still ideas out there. Um, you know, uh, I do, I do those live transcription, you know, sort of sessions where people suggest tunes, we transcribe things. And, um, 
yeah, break came up um, last night when we were doing one and it just blew my mind. There's a bunch of no choice in there that I just would not expect. And the player's name was um, Jeff Autry, I think, and um, not a player I'm super familiar with. Um, but there's a bunch of ideas in there that I was, you know, a little flabbergasted by. And, you know, sometimes you find those things and you're like, whoa, why doesn't anyone do that? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy that it still exists, but yeah, there's still territory to be carved out. You just have to go find it. And um, one of the easiest ways to find it is to explore all of the territory that has been carved out, right? You're like, Oh, this is what Tony did. This is what Trey has done. This is what Billy has done. You look at all these famous players and then, you know, sometimes a hole kind of reveals itself. You're like, Oh, why didn't anyone make this choice? Um, it's almost like uh, not to make a ham fisted metaphor, but it's almost like chess. You can memorize a lot of chess openings. You can sort of get into the middle game by, you know, playing whatever and, you know, playing the Italian or playing this defense or whatever. And uh, <laughs> if you watch, if you watch professional games, they really don't play any standard openings, right? They, uh, they, they, there may be some sort of inclination or reference to a standard opening move in chess, but almost immediately there's a bizarro move and you're like, why? How, what, what are you seeing that I don't see? Uh, and it's that same kind of thing, right? You can find that choice that will, that will throw people off. Mm. Yeah. And that's what, you know, this is what we want out of music. We want enough familiar stuff that we can find something to listen to. And we want enough unfamiliar stuff within that to make it interesting and take area somewhere we hadn't quite expected it was going to. <laughs> Chris Thiele said that he likes to shock you. He wants you to feel like you're falling off a cliff, but when you hit the bottom of the, you know, you hit the bottom of the cliff, you land on a pillow. Um, and I thought that was a nice way of saying it. Like he That's wants to cool. shock you, but he lets you know it's all okay, right? Still yeah, music. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because if all you're doing is shocking people, they're not going to come back. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's. I mean, that's such a cool discussion. I'm. I can imagine, my, let alone anybody else listening to this, me going back and listening to this again and uh, and getting more out of it. It's an absolute pleasure to chat to you again. Thanks so much for coming on. No, it's been lovely being here. Have me back soon. Anytime. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.